0: Just in time for tax day, CNBC reported that the CEOs of the largest companies by revenue last year made an average of $20 million, or 254 times more than the average worker in those companies. That was a 31% increase from the year prior. Average worker pay increased 4%. Now, of course, some CEOs made much more. For instance, Paycom's chief got a beefy $211 million, or 2,900 times more than the company's average worker. This widening gap shows the benefits of corporate profits stay at the top while workers have not been reaping the rewards. The Economic Policy Institute estimates CEO pay is increased by 1322 percent since 1978 compared with an 18 percent bump for the typical worker over the same period this is just one relevant statistic in the ever widening gap of income inequality in our nation one big driver of today's social and political discord but but what i'm mainly interested in here for the moment is that evidently The boards of these corporations and businesses believe the leadership these men offer, and I say men because that's still how the cookie crumbles in this rarefied air, they believe these men are worth the price. That's a reasonable assumption, right? As in, you know, you get what you pay for. But I am left wondering how leadership value is ascertained because it's not always about obvious growth factors. In today's frothy compensation climate, a distressed company can still reach the heights in executive pay, benefits, and stock options. And then this question comes to mind say, in relation to the guy who's making $211 million, do you imagine there's a leader out there who could do at least the same job for, say, $10 million? What's the relationship between a leader, the average worker, and investor here? Just what is leadership supposed to accomplish for whom anyway? What is a good leader? That's what's on my mind today. Leadership plays out very differently in arenas beyond the various forms of commerce, of course, education, politics, religion, even parenting. These all have their unique contexts and rewards. Parker Palmer defines a leader as someone with the power to project either shadow or light onto some part of the world and onto the lives of the people who dwell there. A leader shapes the ethos in which others must live, an ethos as light filled as heaven or as shadowy as hell. A good leader is intensely aware of the interplay of inner shadow and light, lest the act of leadership do more harm than good. And he adds, I think, for example, of teachers who create the conditions under which young people must spend so many hours. Some shine a light that allows new growth to flourish, while others cast a shadow under which seedlings die. I think of parents who generate similar effects in the lives of their families or of clergy who do the same to entire congregations. I think of corporate CEOs whose daily decisions are driven by inner dynamics, but who rarely reflect on those motives or even believe they are real. That short analysis of leadership is as true as any I've read. So long as we also acknowledge that specific aptitudes are required for different arenas. One could be a successful CEO, I suppose, and a miserable parent, for instance, or vice versa. But in general, distinguishing between those that shine a light versus those that cast a shadow seems a crucial distinction when considering the nature of good leadership. Now, I subscribe to the idea that nearly everyone present here exerts leadership of one sort or another somewhere. Some roles specify this explicitly. Most won't be compensated in the manner of PACOM for their efforts, but none of us escapes the truth that as we act in our world, we impact our world and in this way exert a kind of leadership, small though its reach may be. As Teilhard de Chardin had it, we are collaborators in creation, What you and I are becoming, the world is becoming. I think we could say that one aspect of the Christian faith concerns the training of leaders patterned on the model of our namesake. We say that his is the voice we are to follow. His ways are to become our ways. As our gospel has it today, The leadership we practice here begins with submission to a certain shepherd. That's the common language Jesus used. Shepherds were ubiquitous in the first century. Submission requires a quality of humility, a willingness to learn and to consider our ways compared with his ways, a willingness to bend our ways to his. (laughs) I know that's not a terribly sexy definition of leadership, I suppose, born in submission. But like most Christian truths, this one is paradoxical. I could easily have done a sermon on followership this morning. Indeed, that's what sheep do. They follow. But I have three problems leaving it there. One is that sheep imagery feels dated and has been savaged by sentimentality. Second, this followership can seem particularly passive if left in the sheep pen, where unfortunately the church has often left it. Third, I pastor a church that has had many congregants over my decades who either thought of themselves as leaders or who aspired to specific leadership of one form or another, be it in the arts, banking, entrepreneurial ventures, education, religion, law, medicine, or any number of other arenas, large and small, including ones as homely as getting hitched and starting a family. Interestingly, the specific behavior Jesus identified as crucial in followership was the sheep's patterning on the voice of their shepherd. That voice they would recognize and follow. As we heard in today's passage from John, my sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me. He distinguishes that voice from counterfeit voices, and we learn something about authentic leadership in the process. Who has it and who doesn't? And this functions on at least two levels. First, locating Jesus as the truest of all leaders. And second, in the time this gospel was written, probably 70 or more years after his life, locating authentic leadership in the contemporaneous culture. In other words, listening to Jesus' voice long after he's gone. And in that we have precisely the same agenda as those first readers, locating and practicing authentic leadership. All you current and would-be leaders, which are the primary voices that guide you? Taking inventory is a really very useful exercise here. Think about it. Who do you listen to and why? Who are your mentors? What are their values? And since you've shown up in worship, where does the voice of the Good Shepherd fit in? What is his relative positioning among all the other voices? When this shepherd affirmed that the primary organizing principle of life was to love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, did the sound of that strike a resonant chord within? Even if you had never consciously considered such a mission statement for yourself, did it nevertheless sound kinda right? And if so, what effect has it had on your ethos? that you project into your various arenas, your dating life, your home life, your work life, your mundane life? How does it impact your value commitments and concern for the welfare of others? Does it help you distinguish between true and false voices? Some years ago, Tom Long told of attending a dinner where their guest of honor was a church leader from Central Europe. The Soviet Union had come apart only months before and the dinner guests were full of questions about the church during the days of the Cold War. Long relates, the man told about the days under totalitarianism, how the church was officially tolerated but always undermined and repressed. How the clergy were always monitored by secret agents who had infiltrated their ranks. We would have a meeting about some matter of church business, he said. Knowing for certain that not everyone seated at the table could be trusted. Some of the ministers present were, in fact, government agents. He paused for a moment and then added, But even though these government spies were careful never to betray their true identities, we could always tell who they were. But how? someone asked. The voice, he replied. The voice something in their voices would give them away. They had an instinct for discerning the true voice from the false. Now, friends, the point of this message comes down to something really very simple, very basic, very bottom line. God knows there are a thousand and more voices filling the air, clamoring for our followership. That's true even for leaders who presume they function quite independently and who take pride in thinking they are fully autonomous masters of their destiny. Even they have attached themselves to something. Call it a voice that shapes them, which in turn causes them to project an ethos as light-filled as heaven or as shadowy as hell. Or as is the case for most of us, I suppose a shade in between. The fellow depicted in our apse mosaic holds a book open to a page that proclaims, I am the light of the world. If we listen, his voice forms us into persons, leaders of a particular sort, committed to light-filled ends. That's true for us individually, and it's true for us collectively. In this way, I am certain his voice calls us to be a leadership institution for our city and denomination, perhaps as a kind of institute for leadership development. I mean, think about it. How could it be otherwise? It's an inevitable outcome if we listen to his voice. Imagine what Christ's church would be like if we fully, consciously, embrace this as our call please imagine this and then as these next months advance into the future of christ church 2.0 become a creative energized part of fashioning leading the church for the 21st century while listening hard to the voice of the good shepherd